Hey guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and welcome to the Specified Growth Podcast. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and codings industry. Today's guest is Brad Soper. He's a partner at Simon Kucher and Partners. They specialize in pricing and growth strategies. Brad, thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. Happy to be here. So can you tell me your sort of going from the Navy to the the business world? How, How did that happen? Yeah, there's a point in everyone's life where they realize that they're not incredibly young anymore. And I kind of hit that point when we started having kids, my wife and I, and uh, the idea of raising them from a ship halfway around the world wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do for the next 10 years. So I decided to do the MBA and then ended up in consulting. Mm. What, what sort of lessons did you take to the Navy and to the consulting side? Primary one is uh, leadership and how to deal with people. I think there's a high degree of emotional intelligence that comes from any type of an armed service, you know, leadership type role uh, that's very applicable. The armed services overall, I think, are incredibly good at logistics. So where they really excel is in the world of getting a group of people somewhere else with right gear to be able to accomplish something. Mm. That's really applicable in the world of business to implementation. So if you think about actually taking strategy and making it into, you know, something that's affecting the, that's probably been the, the most applicable part of my previous experience into uh, business world. Mm, yeah. I mean, give me an example. I mean, it could be a business example or not. Like what are you, are you talking about? The amount of time you spend on planning or like uh, what are the moving pieces that we're, you're talking about? Yeah. So it's a couple of hard skills and some soft skills. So having a really good plan that has the right level of detail, but also having enough agility to be able to adjust the plan, those are items we did quite a bit in the military and, and translated very well. The other thing is uh, with respect to change management and just you know, inspiring people to accomplish something, setting out a clear vision, clearly communicating that, having cascading messaging around it, and then coming back and rewarding people when they're accomplishing the new uh, requested you know, activities correctly. And that whole reward cycle off of communication, I think is, is one thing that really, really helps with respect to implementation. Okay. So you said consulting. What, what type of consulting did you uh, primarily do? Yeah. So I, I started my career after MBA with one of the bigger strategy management consulting firms, uh, Boston Consulting Group, and primarily did, well, I did a combination of cost and revenue side you know, strategic consulting, some heavy implementation like post-merger integration work, some strategy work. And then I went private equity and I was three years as one of the private equity hired guns that goes in and helps fix up companies. And then I migrated into my uh, current role where I'm a partner with Sun Future and I, I concentrate mainly on revenue improvement, top-line growth for companies. Mm, yeah, a lot of different details there. Okay, let's, let's just unpack uh, private equity. Like what are the keys in the stuff that you were doing with private equity? You know, what were the keys to success there? Yeah, so I was an operations advisor in the private equity space. We jokingly call ourselves the knuckle draggers. <laughs> and that, that's because you know, the, the finance 
side or in the investment side of private equity, you know, they mainly cull through hundreds and thousands of opportunities to try to find where they can find a deal with respect to leverage uh, financial structuring to acquire the asset. On the uh, operations side, you know, it's our responsibility. Okay, we have this asset now. There are three or four main value creation levers, and it was our goal to, or our requirement to jump into the company, you know, to assist the executive team, you know, to actually go impact those those opportunities and, and create leverage on the PL. And so, very hands on, very implementation focused, and oftentimes, an 80% bake plan violently executed was a lot better than a 100% perfect plan, but one that, you know, never got off the shelf. Yeah. So, I mean, you went from private equity into, I guess, you, you said top line revenue growth consulting, but I mean, we're talking about pricing, right? That you, your, your firm right. is known for strategic pricing improvements. Like what, what got you into there? Because I don't know too many people that say, you know, I, I want to be a, a pricing expert. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So, and sometimes I wonder that myself. <laughs> I, uh, one of my last private equity portfolio companies I worked on was a carve out about a $4 billion in revenue distribution company where we had 400 sellers that were all, you know, setting price cost plus. And one of the value creation levers or hypotheses we had was that by getting more value-based pricing approach, we could add margin to the business. And I ended up going through about a year-long pricing excellence journey with them. And we were able to add a good amount of margin to the top line of the business in a market that was fairly flat and without significant volume or our customer churn, volume loss or customer churn. So I became really interested in the power and the leverage afforded with pricing. And as a result, decided to focus on it uh, longer term by joining Simon Kutcher. Mm, yeah, so I, we, we all know pricing is important, but very few companies do it well. Like how, how do you help a company that's thinking maybe that they're doing cost plus and how do you transform them into a company that does value-based uh, pricing? Yeah, so the first answer is that pricing is a journey, not a destination. Mm-hmm. So pricing done well should be something that's focused on every day because it directly impacts your, your bottom line. If you think about profitability, the, just what profit is, it's you know volume times price minus your fixed cost, minus your variable costs. At the end of the day, as a business owner, you know, it's the absolute profitability of the business that counts because that's what you get to keep for all of your efforts and hard work for running the business. Yeah. But when you really step back and look at it, most businesses concentrate first on their costs because they're easy. You can observe them within the four walls. It's easy to impact them somewhat just because it's fairly concentrated where the costs come from. They also spend a lot of time focusing on processes and product because the product is always viewed as that's our king in the market. You know, what, how do we build a better mousetrap? And then he also talked a good bit about volume. Where can we find additional volume or take market share? When you really kind of step back, though, most companies don't spend all that much time talking about pricing, price realization, mm-hmm. leakages. And so if that's the basis 
And then you go and you say, okay, how do we transition from cost plus more value-based pricing? I guess the, the first thing is just, are you spending enough time even thinking about price? Mm. Because price you know, drops straight to the bottom line. As long as you don't have any changes in your cost base, if you're able to achieve an extra penny on, on price on every product goes out the door, that's, that's straight profit. Yeah, so one of the concepts that, that I ran across in, in the various books uh, your firm puts out is understanding the demand curve and how to figure that out. Can you walk us through that process? Yes, I'll, I'll start by saying sure. the typical consulting answer, which is it's complicated. <laughs> and, but as, as we all know, for any given price, there's a certain amount of demand in the market. Some industries, demand is fairly uh, fixed. So I could lower the price a good amount for the same product tomorrow, but that doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to buy more product or need more product. So if you're supplying, for example, into a manufacturing operation, there's a certain amount of demand that manufacturing plant downstream has. And just because you change price doesn't mean that they're going to also need 10 times more of the product. However, in some applications like uh, leisure and travel, at least when people were traveling, yeah. can stimulate demand by adjusting price. So, for example, someone that wouldn't have taken a trip yesterday will today as a result of the price going below a certain threshold. So, it's important to understand whether you're in an industry that where demand can be influenced by price versus not. And then understand where those thresholds might lie within the business. In general, fairly inelastic industries or B2B industries where you can adjust price, but you're not going to see a big volume adjustment as a result. Whereas consumer goods or leisure and travel tend to be fairly elastic, meaning you can stoke demand by working the, the price curve. Yeah. So I know there's different methods to test for this. What are some methods to figure out if you're pricing at the appropriate level? Good question. I would actually take a step back first and say, do you have the right product offering or bundle or packaging strategy before you start saying whether you're pricing a specific product at the right point? Ideally, you want to create a product portfolio where you're able to capture many of the different price points in the market without having to worry about adjusting price of a specific product up and down because you're able to steer a customer toward another offering that's more in the range for what their willingness to pay is. Mm, yeah, that, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, so we'd often, you know, it's funny, just classic example, if you, have, if you have two bottles of wine on a shelf and one's, say, 10 bucks and the other's 15 bucks, you'll tend to sell a lot more of the $10 bottle than you will the 15 although I personally wouldn't pick either. <laughs> <laughs> if you create a new third option that's, say, $25, you'll actually end up getting more migration from the $10 to the $15 bottle and you'll sell some of the $25 bottle. So in general, you should always have at least three offerings within kind of a comparable value offering. You don't want to go up to 15 offerings, but if you only have two, you're going to bias. Your customers will just naturally bias toward the less expensive option. If you have three, you're going to end up hitting more in the middle. Mm. You do that before you start playing with adjusting price. Mm. 
Now, one of the concepts I, I really found that was that was really cool in the the various books is the concept of fencing off properly. Can you explain that concept? Yeah, absolutely. Particularly B2B companies are notoriously bad about creating fences and then sticking to them. So going back to my my example, we have three different offerings. We'll just call it offer A, you know, it's high price, offer B, kind of middle price, and offer C, it's low, low price. You need to make enough separation between those that the benefits of the packages don't overlap. So that's creating a fence between the offerings. And then you need to be really careful around governance, around how your salespeople or on e-com, the products and the values are presented, that there is a clear differentiation and gap between the, the best offering and the, the middle offering, for example. And you need to maintain that all the way through to what you're willing to do in terms of discounts you know, off of the requested, the initial requested price or target price. What happens can happen with weaker governance is you, you have the customer fixating on the best offering and then they say, yeah, but I'm only willing to pay the middle price. And then the salespeople say, okay, you can have the best offering in the middle price. And that's, that's where we would say the fences have collapsed and that's where you end up bleeding margin as a result. Mm, yeah. Now, one of the complaints I hear in the B2B space where we are is companies doing geographic fences that don't work. And there's companies that work outside certain between jurisdictions and they're being micromanaged and it's, it's irritating them a lot. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty common. I think in the building materials industry, that is particularly a problem. So a, a good example of this that I saw rather recently was a company that supplied into the Cincinnati, Ohio market. They had a different pricing grid, discount grid for the Kentucky side of the city. Ooh. And so, you know, a builder that was building over on Cincinnati side would get one price and then go across the river and now all of a sudden it was two bucks different per pallet. And, you know, no one could really explain. And what it came down to is the, the manufacturer set the pricing grids using state borders. And so... Particularly when you get into a distribution type environment, in this case, it was a building manufacturer that was supplying through distribution to the general contractor market. You need to be thoughtful about MSAs. You need to be thoughtful about consumption areas. I think we can all agree that there's a different willingness to pay for a building, say, in New York City, and quite a bit of you know hassle getting product in there for a major building versus something that's being built in like Des Moines, Iowa, for example. But Des Moines is very different from suburbs of Chicago. So being thoughtful about geography is, is good and helpful, but also you can't get into the world where you say Cincinnati and Northern Kentucky aren't the same grid. There needs to be some sort of rationale when there's conflict, if that's what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Okay. From a manufacturer side, though, if you have one national price, yeah. That typically doesn't cover the differential in cost to serve. So freight, say you've got two manufacturing locations, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast, freight and stocking into the greater New York City area is very different from stocking in Columbus, Ohio. And you, know, you should have a different price grid for greater New York area just because the costs are, 
cost serve is so much higher. So mm-hmm. it's being unfair to customers, but it's also not being so segmented that people don't have some, it can't be explained why there is a price difference. What we find as long as you have a, a good talk track and rationale behind it, the value chain is willing and understands how to differentiate that and then carry it through to the end consumer in a rational manner. It's just, you got to have ration behind it. Yeah, that makes sense. I think a lot of building materials companies could learn from that because I, I don't know too many companies that do that well. <laughs> so so for, for pricing, I mean, pricing is always going through your brain. I mean, I'm just trying to think what goes through your mind when you walk through any store because there's prices everywhere. It, they must stand out and, and people around you must hear about you talking about price all the time. Yeah, it's funny you should mention that. I've got my twin 16-year-old boys and my daughter who's a middle school trained. Now they'll walk in, they'll look at uh, like a, a lineup of uh, various options for purchase in like an airport store. And yeah. pointing out inconsistencies. <laughs> a couple of years, I do primarily personally work in B2B space, a lot sure. of materials companies, but I have done some consumer products over the years and a couple of years ago, we did a pricing program with one of the bigger fast food chains. And yeah. my daughter and I went around and visited, you know, kind of locally, seven or eight, you know, storefronts. And I bought her a milkshake or an ice cream cone, I think five of them. And by the seventh, <laughs> seventh restaurant, she was like pointing out the problems while the manager was standing in front of us. And she was uh, sixth grade at the time. She's like, you know, at the other storefront they, they were five cents more you know in separation between this value meal and that one why is this different here so like when you're walking around what are the common mistakes you see like that pop out like most often like you know whether you're just yeah. wandering around listening to conversations and stuff like well that. as as a consumer it's different than in the b2b space sure sure i'll just use the analogy or the example again of fast food or qsr restaurant sure and it's a combination of product offering as well as price. Yeah. So, you know, everything needs to come back to value. What's the value and the willingness to pay of a customer when they're making purchase decision, as well as what is their perception of value, an alternative to what they want. So, you know, if you're a consumer walking into a fast food restaurant, it's pretty good chance that you've already made the decision to purchase. It's just a matter of where you know, what you're going to buy. And then it's, so for them, the issue is around, you know, where do you want the eye to land? You know, what are the packages you're trying to steer toward? And what's the relative value positioning of those packages? Mm-hmm. Some QSR restaurants do the Chinese menu of three gazillion items. <laughs> we typically say there is, it's, it's more important to have the right items featured and not overwhelm, you know, from a psychology perspective, what's being offered. Other chains are, you know, have a much uh, shorter menu, but then they really work packages. So it's important from the perspective of someone providing product to the market to understand where are they trying to target people to go to? How do they present that versus the price? Because the price is just the trade-off for the value that people want, and that's the food or the, the package deal. And then how do you think about relative positioning of those? Most people make decision really fast, but it's kind of a psychology. They don't necessarily articulate why they're making the decision. They just 
you kind of know in their head they want one or two items and then what's the relative positioning of those. So there's a lot that goes into it and I'm only able to kind of scratch the surface here, but how you anchor customers and how you present that first impression has a big impact on, on their purchase decision. And that's the thing that I always find fascinating is what, what is the chain actually trying to present? How are they trying mm. to anchor you? And then how are they trying to steer you through the menu? Mm. Give us an example of anchoring. Yeah, so when you're going to the airport, for example, and you go to the duty-free shop, what they're doing is they're putting the most expensive liquor right at eye level. And they, those always have an inflated price, or they might be relatively inflated. They're going to offer tax-free or duty-free and say it's a great deal. But if you're looking, if you're starting your, your kind of purchase decision or browsing by seeing something that's $100 a bottle, you know, what they're really going to do is try to sell you. Know, their, their buying drivers are a shelf or two lower, you know, and those are the $20 or $30 bottles. They're anchoring you on the $100 bottle. and then the volume is down below where they're they're expecting your purchase decision. You know, that, that bottle that you're buying at $25 may be typically 20 bucks, but because you've anchored on $100, it seems like a pretty good deal. Mm. In B2B context, that can work as well. So if you think about good, better, best package lineup, if you're a salesperson or a company thinking strategically about how do you present your product portfolio, you should be leading with the best product, the highest price product with the right features, you know, that makes sense within the context of the customer needs. They anchor on that product, those product benefits. And then when you introduce the product that's a little bit down market with the appropriate fencing in between, then they've already anchored on the higher product. And it's a psychology thing. If I start with something that has more features, more value to me and then you start taking stuff away i feel like i've lost something and that's harder from a psychology perspective on the mind than i start with something lower value and then adding on because there you've anchored on the lower value fewer feature area and it's not as powerful psychological to work up market as i give you something now i'm going to take it away while we're taking away price. Yeah, I think I read a story about, you know, I, I guess a luggage store owner bringing over an expensive and showing an expensive luggage item first before they, they showed them the price range that they were, they were ask, asking for. I guess that was an example of anchoring. Yeah, that's a great example. In retail actually, at least higher end retail does this pretty well. They always try to steer you toward the more expensive, kind of within region, reason option, and then they'll work you down to what your actual willingness to pay is. Mm. What are some example, very visible examples of pricing mistakes in the marketplace that sort of come to mind? Okay, within, do you want B2B or B2C examples? B2B, if you, if you have some off the top of your head, yeah. Yeah, so one of the... Ones we see quite often within the billing materials industry specifically is with respect to rebates. So a lot of companies mm. will create a pricing grid or a list price discount grid off that and then go off invoice. Hey, if you get a certain amount of volume over a year or if you actually build that entire you know, building, we, we get the full spec of goods into the building. We'll give you a discount on the back end. The issue that comes up with rebates is they're often negotiated one-off. And so 
a lot of the companies we've worked with, they have rebates, which are good because the lines, if you give me more volume, I'll give you a better price in the back end. But they don't think strategically about how the rebates are structured by product or by customer class. So you, you may end up having a pretty small customer in terms of volume earning through a rebate, something similar to one of your best customers. And then the net price delivered comes out to be the smaller customers getting a really good deal. So mm. thinking strategically about rebates, seeing all the rebates you have in place, or if you're creating a system from new, you're making sure that there is there are still fences to keep customers of different size and value in separate regions as far as the net price is important. And what we've seen too often is once rebates are put in place, they just get re-rolled every year with very little kind of update or systematic thought. And so my advice would just be make sure if you do have rebates out there, you're looking with a fresh set of eyes every year at those before you just automatically renew them. Yeah. Because the effect of they actually have to be resized every year to the market environment. Mm. So is there an argument for not going down the rebate route and going with a different strategy? It depends. Again, as a consultant, I'm going to say it depends. It depends on your market position. It also depends on what you're trying to do as far as corporate strategy. So if you're a good way to think about this is a list price is communication of the product value to the market. So if you're a number one or number two in a market, you know, it's fairly concentrated, communicating a high list price to the market, which invariably your competitors are going to hear about or become aware of, helps to maintain price and willingness to pay in the market. If your, if your value prop is everyday low, low price, you know, kind of the Walmart business model, then you might want to do even more things and you're trying to attack instead of putting a price out like a high list price, you may put a medium range list price, but then go through off invoice or even non invoice discounts to even go lower to capture market share. Another mistake we see is companies unwittingly getting into price wars, particularly on the B2B side, thinking that they're going to be able to capture a major amount of market share. And the reality is that in B2B, especially when you have high fixed costs, you know, your competitors are going to have to respond. So while you might see changes in share for a small period of time, the ability to use price as lever to affect major shifts in share is few and far between. So we would say be very careful about how you think about the pricing so that you, know, you don't walk yourself through whatever mechanism of price into a price war. Yeah. So you talk about price wars. How do you how do you minimize the chance that you know you get into price wars with people. I think I've, I, I read some discussion around that. Maybe you can touch on that. Yeah, absolutely. I think the best advice with this is to have a plan and have it written down ahead of time. So it's pretty easy to hear anecdotal evidence from, you know, for example, salespeople that come back and say, well, the competitor is just irrational. The I got to tell you about the price we just heard. You know, it's how can they possibly do that? But then invariably the salesperson wants to win and the company decides to go lower. <laughs> That's the way you get in a price war because enough anecdotal stories or people yelling loud enough 
and a company actually making moves because of that, and you end up getting yourself into trouble. I like telling this to clients. So I like saying or asking you know, the exact team, how rational are you in the way you go to market with respect to price? I mean, are you systematic, et cetera? And, and most of the time they'll say, well, we've got some issues, but we're fairly structured. We have a good approach. You know, we're fairly rational. And then I'll ask, well, you know, how rational is your main competitor? And they'll say, well, pretty rational, but let me, then they'll start thinking about some deals they heard about. And they'll say, oh yeah, there was a deal last month. There was this building in New York and they did a deal on, they're okay, but they've got some real issues. And then I spring my trap, which is I ask, okay, if you put yourselves in the shoes of your main competitor and I ask you as the exec team of the competitor, how rational company A is being yourselves, what do you think they'd say? And that's typically where the heads start coming down <laughs> and everyone's like, oh yeah, we did that deal. And so it's about having a system, having good governance around the system, actually tracking yourself to adherence of the system. And then having preset canned reactions to take emotion out of it if you find that something's moving against you. But to prevent yourself from spiraling down into a price war. So if one seller is hearing about one deal where the other company is torpedoing you on price, you you need to put it in context. Is that a deal you want that competitor to win or not? And we like to think about distance and cost to serve of the customer. So, you know, if you've got two suppliers in the market, one in New York, another one in Ohio, and the company or the customer that the competitor tries to uh, supply is equidistance between Columbus, Ohio, and New York City, okay, either person could probably supply or either company could supply that customer probably at the same cost to serve. That's different from competitor that's in Ohio going into New York City where we are located and saying a potential customer right across the street from our headquarters, we're going to torpedo price. If that happens, the supplier in Ohio is going to have a much higher cost to serve. They don't really want that business. Why would we ever drop our, our price you know, down on that? We should let that competitor take that customer and then you know, drown on the loss of margin and eventually they're going to let that customer go. So being thoughtful about geographically and from a customer-serve perspective as to where they're going after and trying to go after price, that should inform how you think about adjusting your pricing. Hmm, interesting. So you're, you're advocating that if it's not within your core market and it's, it's outside that you may not want to, you have a higher cost to serve or maybe you have a lower level of winning it because you have a lower ability to execute on that is to kind of hold the price. And then if someone comes and attacks that position, then maybe letting them have it because it's not kind of part of your core area. Yeah, exactly. It all depends on the scale of your business and what your strategy is, but key factors and kind of the whole thing is around segmentation. So segmentation, your customer base, of the product offering, geographic segmentation. And then think about it carefully. Not all customers are of equal value. Not all products or bundles are of equal value to you or to a customer. And there are some accounts that you 
you can afford to let go. And then there are other accounts where you, you want to protect them at all costs. And just having a preset script of if it's this, if it meets this criteria, here's the actions we're going to take. It doesn't need to be overly complex. You can have four or five categories, uh, types of customer product combos. You go with different responses, but it's, it's being thoughtful about that. And the biggest thing is don't react in the heat of the moment. Just say, Hey, just because they're willing to take 2%. You know, gross margin on it. We will too because we want to keep the volume at all costs because that's where you end up just resetting the entire level lower and that's what spirals into price work. Mm, that makes sense. So what do you do? Do you have any hobbies uh, that you, you, you sort of keep going? Yeah, I have a, a number. So I really uh, enjoy sports in general and coaching my kids a little league, although my sons are now in high school, so they have, quote, professional coaches. <laughs> I also enjoy getting outdoors, uh, hiking, mountaineering, sailing, and uh, of course, my father-in-law has a little single-seat airplane, and because I used to fly in the Navy, I still enjoy getting out there every once in a while. Ooh, that's very cool. You said sailing. What do you sail? I uh, do both inshore and offshore uh, racing, as well as like small dinghy, and my kids out cruising on the uh, Gulf of Mexico. Very cool. I used to sail around in a laser. That was fun. Yeah, lasers are great. I've, I've raced those quite a bit over the years. Very cool. Okay. Well, I mean, what's what's the next five years look like for you? I'll be at Simon Kutcher, I assume. Our model is one of kind of long-term growth of the firm, and we don't really have much turnover in terms of partners within the firm. I do quite a bit more than just pricing work, so I do a lot of top-line improvements. That's sales effectiveness, general go-to-market strategy product portfolio uh, review. I was kind of that way when I was in private equity and just carried that over into my focus of of my work. But next five years is continuing to build out and grow into the white space we have as a firm in the North American market in particular. We've had tremendous growth during seven years I've been with the firm and uh, I don't see any limitation to that. So my goal is to continue to build out our geographic coverage in terms of the number of partners, the depth of capabilities, and continue to help our clients be as successful as they can in the market. Very cool, Brad. It was a pleasure. I definitely learned a few additional things from our conversations, and I'm sure our listeners have too. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure chatting with you today, and I look forward to hearing this on the the web. (laughs) Perfect. I want to thank everyone for listening to Specify today. also want to thank the listeners who are working hard each day to change the world to make it a better place. If you know anyone, anyone that would benefit from this episode, please pass it along. And finally, make sure you subscribe to hear upcoming episodes. Talk to you soon. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.